helping them build savings, helping them get into a situation where they're no longer, you know, reliant on things like overdrafts or wage advances. Instead, they're able to start really thriving. And for us, it's really about making our members financially whole and helping them achieve financial prosperity through a whole suite of different financial products that are designed for them and match the experience that they need. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with fellow Venture for America alumni, Ryan Cleary. Ryan is the co-founder and COO at FloatMe, a fintech startup located here in Cleveland, Ohio, and in San Antonio, Texas. Ryan grew up here, though, in Cleveland, on the west side in Lakewood, and later graduated from Case Western before getting his master's from Harvard. He ultimately ended up moving to San Antonio, though, where he co-built and managed a startup accelerator before pursuing his longtime passion for financial equity by actually starting FloatMe in late 2017 when he met his co-founder, Josh Sanchez, at a startup weekend event there. Today, FloatMe is on a mission to make financial prosperity achievable for all Americans, starting by creating an affordable alternative to the $46 billion overdraft and payday lending industries, while simultaneously offering tools to help people build savings. And so far, FloatMe members have saved over $30 million in fees. And FloatMe is on an absolute tear recently, closing on a $3.7 million seed round at the end of 2020, led by investors here in the Midwest, followed up by a $25 million debt financing deal in April of this year. Personally, I am a huge fan of what Ryan is building. The financial lives of many Americans are whipsawed by a handful of predictable financial events that repeat with high frequency, the dates of which are entirely outside of their control, though. Rent or mortgage payments, car payments, credit card payments, student loan payments, and ultimately payroll, when people actually get paid. And Flowme is really pushing a paradigm shift here, and I am excited to share Ryan's story. So please enjoy. So I want to start just kind of with an overview here of what FloatMe is. I think we can venture out and explore from there, but I'd love to just kind of set the stage here. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Really excited to be here with you and all our listeners today. So FloatMe is a fintech company, and our mission is to provide a pathway to financial prosperity for low middle income Americans. So think individuals making about 25K to 75K per year. Today, we're doing this by providing a platform which offers all of our members access to interest-free floats of up to $50, which help them prevent overdraft fees and avoid needing to use payday loans, as well as providing bank alerts, other financial information, and helping our members build savings in a whole variety of different ways. So our platform is currently live in both app stores, and we're really excited to be continuing to expand it over time. Yeah, so this problem space is something I'm, I'm really excited to explore with you here. We can definitely dive deeper into kind of the, the macro topics, but I, I kind of want to start with just how it is that you came to, to find yourself wanting to found and, and build a company tackling this specific problem. And if you could just share a little bit about your own entrepreneurial journey and, and how it is that you arrived here at, at FloatMe. 
Yeah, so I'll say the problem is something that's very near and dear to me. So I grew up in Cleveland, went to school over at Case Western, so very deep Cleveland roots on my end. My household growing up was, I would say, low middle class. We had always had enough money for the essentials, but the non-essentials were kind of optional based on how things were going. My dad at the time was getting a business started during most of my childhood. So things were tight. And for me, because of that, for me, money was always very top of mind, like many millennials who had parents who grew up during you know previous financial crises, who came to age during the 08 financial crisis. You know, you were there's a lot of conventional wisdom around how to manage money that maybe wasn't the best for you over the long run. One sure. of those big things was, you know, credit cards are bad. They're dangerous. You know, you think back to the era, I think pre, it wasn't really till like 2010, 2011, you know, people would go on campus, get college students, you know, credit cards without disclosing a lot of the costs of them. So, you know, growing up, I didn't have a credit card until, you know, very late in college. I really, you know, basically was a scholarship student over at Case Western. So I worked multiple jobs, making my way through that. And getting into my senior year, money was really tight. And I had to do some pretty crazy stuff, just be able to afford my last uh, year of college. I ended up selling blood plasma, ended up, you know, working multiple jobs. So the struggle of personal finance for young millennials is something that's always been very top of mind for me. And yeah, at the time when I left school, I studied economics in undergrad. I, you know, really thought I was going to go to management consulting and ended up actually um, by pure happenstance talking to somebody who worked at a local uh, startup incubator. They suggested I should apply for a job there instead um, and really just fell in love with, you know, the problem solving and dynamism of working with startups in the startup ecosystem. And that really just was a major career shift for me. I ended up eventually doing Venture for America, which is a great community here in Cleveland as well as nationally. Sure is. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, how I met you, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> ended up actually then moving to San Antonio to build an accelerator, a startup accelerator geared towards two-year college students, you know, down in San Antonio for about two years. And what anybody who's ever moved cross country knows, it makes you broke really quick, especially <laughs> as you're a you know young twenty something, twenty two, twenty three. You know you've don't have a lot of savings in the first place. And then you it costs several thousand dollars to make the move, and then on top of that, you have you know our lovely college debt payments to go along with it. So when I moved, I was pretty much underwater. Probably was negative a little bit on the credit card, and it was right a little bit after that move, about three months when this was you know, just the challenge of managing cash shortfalls, you know, was still very fresh on my mind. I met my co-founder, Josh. We met at a startup weekend event, basically the last place that people normally find, you know, people that you build a long-term founder relationship. Like we, all the boxes you're supposed to check with founders, we did not. We barely <laughs> knew each other. You know, we were both in our 20s. Neither of us was a highly technical co-founder, and we met at a startup weekend event, but he had recently been through this really just crazy set of circumstances. He had also recently, you know, graduated school, had started a new job and early, you know, first week of going to work, he's driving along down the street to go to work and he and his car get hit by a bus 
Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I always have to emphasize he was in the car at the time. He was okay. People sometimes think, oh, he got hit by a bus. It's now we picture it's just, you know, guy in a car. Still, still. Yeah, still not great. Um, <laughs> and the killer part of this, he had done everything right. He had car insurance. He had a little, as much savings as he could. But he ended up having to take all the savings he had and put it towards paying the copay on his car insurance and a little bit more for the things that weren't covered. And the net result of that was Josh still had another you know, week to two weeks before he was going to get his first paycheck because of the way pay cycles are stretched out with your first job and even in general. Yeah, he needs money for groceries, gas, you know, small basics, these small expenses that add up that you need to be able to function in life. And as he was walking down the street you know, at his job, he ended up see, passing by a payday loan uh, shop there. And like me, he didn't have a lot of you know, prior knowledge and financial literacy. He was from the Rio Grande Valley, you know, just very south, southern part of Texas, which is a you know, kind of financially challenged area in the U.S. So he didn't have a ton of you know, all the background that he would have liked to have had either. And you know, as a result, he didn't really know what he was getting into with that payday loan. And what he ended up you know, finding out and was shocked by was a couple of things. You know, one, you don't really understand the magnitude of triple digit interest rates until you really experience it. You know, the average payday loan is between 300% and 700%, depending on what state you're in in the US. Your credit card typically is somewhere between anywhere from 10 to 25%. A typical, I think, mortgage right now is about 3%. So those right. interest rates are crazy. Extraordinary. Yeah. So, you know, he ends up taking out this loan. And what also struck him, you know, looking back on it is it was for the minimum they would do was $200. And this just caught him in this, you know, debt cycle where he eventually managed to pay it off, but it accrued a ton of interest. I think the in just two weeks, it was something like $50 on a $200 loan, which he didn't actually need that much. It was just the minimum they would provide to him. He felt like really $50 or $100 would have been enough. And he ended up also, because of just the challenge of getting it paid up back and everything, it also ended up causing him to overdraft his bank account, which also carries really high fees. Typically, they're about $35 a pop just for going negative, even by you know a penny or a dollar. So we met at the Startup Weekend event and both of us were had this whole financial, you know, cash shortfalls very much on our minds. And that was just the point where, you know, it clicked for both of us. We found discovered this other person who was very passionate about it. And we ended up developing this idea. Josh initially pitched the early version of building a better alternative for people who are experiencing a cash shortfall, who are employed, who are doing everything right, but there's been some sort of disruption in their life. And that's really how Fault Me was born. We conceptualized the idea of having a digital platform where somebody could go on and wouldn't be penalized for having no credit or bad credit. As long as they are employed, they could access a short-term float based on wages that they had accrued. So they've been working, but hadn't yet been paid out. And we wouldn't charge any interest Instead, we would just charge a membership fee. And then we would, once they were financially stable, we would help them increase their financial literacy. We would help them build savings so that they wouldn't end up in this situation again in the future. And right. then we would have the platform keep growing with them. 
So that was really what we conceptualized early on in a lot of ways. It's pretty broadly stayed the same, um, but there have been small tweaks along the way. So when we left, you know, we thought that we were, we were really focused on making this geared towards employees so that they can make it through those small emergencies. We were initially going to be a B2B company. And we had the good fortune of meeting not long afterwards. I think it was three months afterwards, our third co-founder, Chris Brown, not the rapper, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> who was a absolute tech wizard. He was with Rackspace in the early days. He built bank level infrastructure for some major banks. Sure. Um, it's been all around absolute badass. And that was really essential because Josh and I, we could probably code our way out of a really small box, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> and we weren't going to be capable of this. So, you know, fast forward a little bit. We spent a long time doing market research, well over a year interviewing. We did, you know, a couple hundred interviews. We got I think close to 15,000 survey responses really validated out before we, you know, even did the first beta test back in winter 2018. And we raised, I think, that maybe $10,000 from just a community pitch event. And the rest of it, we purely bootstrapped until we were ready to do a private beta in August of 2019, which coincided with how we came back to Cleveland. Well, really came to Cleveland and how I got to come back and really reconnect with the community that is very near and dear to me. We went through the Venture for America Startup Accelerator. The first year was in Cleveland Mm -hmm. and had a great experience with that. We ended up raising our first institutional round led mainly by Cleveland investors. Really, it was just a very exciting time. And that's really what kicked off all the momentum that got us to where we are today. Wow. Yeah. What a, what a story. There are a lot of threads here I, I want to pull on. As you were telling that story, I, this quote kept coming to mind. I'm certainly going to butcher it, but it is, I think it's an Einstein quote. It's along the lines of compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it, and he who does not pays it. It's like something like that. And I think that concept of compound interest and how powerful it is, it's really this kind of wild concept. And I want to come back to the problem just from a macro level and and kind of understand what is the scale of this problem? When we talk about overdraft fees, cash advances, borrowing against your next paycheck, this high interest payday loans, dearth of emergency funds, like beyond the, the kind of personal anecdotes, you know, at a national level, what are we talking about here? Yeah. So when we started this out, we, none of us imagined it would be as big as it is. You know, in my mind, I always pictured it as it's something that, you know, people who are working, you know, minimum wage jobs probably have this problem. You know, maybe people who've had a big major financial event, like a huge car accident or medical bills. And it's actually really widespread. So last year, you know, just looking at payday loans, just that specific segment, you're looking at last year in 2020, about 12 million people took out a payday loan, 12 million employed people, which accounted for about, what's it? I believe it's $11 billion in fees. And that compounding interest that you're talking about there, Jeff, you know, typically what happens is somebody doesn't just take out one payday loan. Typically what happens is those fees and that interest is so high that two weeks later, when they go to pay it back, they actually can't afford to. So the way the payday lenders like to do it is they wrap it up and they create another loan for them. 
you know, they use that second loan to pay off the first loan. This happens again and again. It typically takes almost eight months. Jeez, and that's it's just like compounding, compounding interest. Exactly. Exactly. It's this really nasty cycle. So that's just payday loans right there. If you look at everybody uh, across the U.S., if you take three people at random, one of those three people last year overdrafted their bank account. And, you know, that works out between payday loans and overdraft bank accounts to be about $46 billion in fees that American employees paid. Just fees. Just fees. That's not the... That's not the actual loan principle. That's not, and that's ignoring a whole bunch of other financial products like high interest, you know, revolving loans that, you know, we can't even really get into, you know, that's just $46 billion in fees. And it's a problem that may have gotten worse just with the pandemic. You know, the other, that's the one side that's the, you know, people taking out the loans. The other side is people who are vulnerable and at risk. And that's, you know, 78% of Americans pre-pandemic were living paycheck to paycheck and which translates to 43% not being able to handle an emergency that was just $400. They didn't have $400 worth of credit or savings available. And that's, I think it's like two tires, you know, getting two tires replaced on your car. That's, you know, maybe a larger than normal doctor's visit with some blood work, you know, for a family of four, that might be, you know, a week or two of groceries. So there's a lot of Americans living right on the edge. And, you know, you're talking 100 million, yeah, maybe, who are being affected by this type of issue. And the reality is, and the reality that we saw is that the situation sucks. You know, if you need a small amount of money, you can't get from that from the bank. A bank wants to loan you, you know, $1,000. They want to loan you $5,000. When I was getting a used car, I had a huge problem in college being able to find a bank that would lend me, you know, just $2,500 pay for this car, they all wanted to do $5,000 or $10,000, hmm. which means that we have this gap in the market where for people who need just a small amount, it's either, you know, go to a payday lender, overdraft your bank account, which is really, it's the most efficient way to get a quick, fast loan, but, you know, $35 on a $20 overdraft, that's some really high interest right there. <laughs> um or, you know, if you are lucky enough to have family or friends who can afford it, go to them, which has its own set of challenges. And for many people, you know, their social group is in a very similar financial situation as them. I probably wouldn't have dreamed in college of going to my parents if I needed help. You know, Josh didn't go to his parents, you know, because both there's maybe some financial challenges, but also there's there's a pride too. You know, you don't sure. want to go to people who you care about, you and you know, begging for money, especially when you're very early in your adulthood. Yeah, the other big thing that we found, uh, this actually came from you know when we were doing some of those early tests in winter 2018, we got asked a lot about why why $50? Why is that our cap? Why is that our max? And really what we found is, you know, we started off doing it the early testing with $100 to $200 because we thought, oh, that's what payday loans do. They must be onto something. Right, right. There must be a reason for this. And what we ended up finding is we, we had a lot of data. You know, our members, you know, we effectively operate, you know, by being able to link up and directly transfer funds. And when we looked at the data, we found that most of them didn't actually need a full $100 or $200. Instead, what we saw is that people would just 
they would take out whatever the max that you were offering them. And this is there's a whole psychology, you know, research area around this, but basically people will, you know, take out the max you offer both as a hedge against risk and also, you know, just kind of a psychological quirk. But what we found at a larger scale, we started digging further into this, both in our product and also looking for what research others had done, mm-hmm. is that America as a whole has a huge overborrowing problem. You know, few charitable trusts who are you know, a very reputable research firm, as well as the, I think it was the St. Louis Federal Reserve, they ended up finding that in case of overdrafts, the majority of those overdrafts, they weren't being caused by a $100 transaction or $200 or even $50 they were being caused by just a $24 shortfall. So we decided to reduce our float limit to $50. And many of our members actually do start off a little bit less at closer to 20 to 30, because that's what most of them actually need. And we decided to employ techniques like nudge theory to help them make more optimal financial decisions, decisions that would be better for them in the long run. Right, right. And what it really helps them out with is it's a lot easier to repay, you know, a twenty dollar or even fifty dollar float than it is to repay a two hundred dollar loan that has a ton of interest piling up on it. That difference of you know maybe two hours worth of work versus you know dozens or even days. So yeah, so it's really big problem, really mm-hmm. big problem that we're hoping to solve. Yeah, I want to build on the psychology component for a bit and ask about trust you know you've made you've made the comparison yourself of you know what float me is building to to the current system which is clearly broken but payday loans and you know people i think tend to stay away from anything new that tries to replace the old system for fear that the new system may be even worse and you know you have those like colloquialisms that there's no such thing as a free lunch and you know if it sounds like what you're offering is is too good to be true especially in a world where there are so many sinister predatory products out there. How have you gone about building trust with, with these users who are really putting a lot of faith in, in your product and, and offering in FloatMe and educating them about the reality of maybe some of the alternatives out there, but also what it is that you're actually doing for them? Yes, that's a really great you know, thing to chat about. You know, what, one of the biggest things with trust is yeah, between us and our users is really being transparent across the board. So if you go on our you know, go on our website or if you go on the app store, you know, we are very upfront with what our pricing is. You know, we don't charge interest, we don't charge any hidden fees that are buried in, you know, terms of service that we all know most people don't actually read. Right. We're upfront with if this is a dollar ninety-nine per month, here are the requirements for you to be eligible. And we offer the first 30 days for free because sometimes people hop on, they realize they're actually not eligible. Sometimes they realize this isn't right for them, but it's all about making it so that everything is very clear, very transparent. You know, we have a, we made sure that our cancellation process can be done in app or can also be very clear instructions for how to do it outside of the app. Even we, we want people to feel like all the information that they need and care about is out there and available. So that's piece one. It's just being very transparent. And it's a, it's also a cultural thing. You know, within the company, we try to be very transparent as well. If somebody has questions about financials, pretty much all our financials you know, are easily accessible to all most of our employees. We're always happy to share them and answer any questions as a team. You know, 
we try to keep our Slack channels even very transparent so everybody's aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And for our customers, the other piece is in addition to being very transparent and also being very clear about what makes us different. Yeah, it's an intentional reason why we use the word floats. Yeah, we could use the technical phrase, which is early wage access program or earned wage access program. But that's a whole new category that the CF Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, it didn't exist before 2017. So none of them really know what it is. So we came up with a you know, phrase that makes it clear what we do, what it is, but clearly delineates it. But the other big piece is making sure that our customers and members feel heard. So for us, we're big believers in fanatical support. And some of this comes from our DNA of a lot of our team members were part of Rackspace in the early days. And Rackspace really, you know, they were this cloud hosting startup, you know, back in the early 2000s that since then has become a multi-billion dollar, you know, behemoth at hosting. But back then, they were really big on solving the customer problem and being very available for their customers. That was their edge. That was how they competed. And, you know, there's a lot of areas that we compete on, but we believe that making so that our customers can always reach, can always reach us through our support portal, know that they're going to receive an answer and it's going to be a truthful and transparent answer that helps build up a lot of trust. We sometimes have customers who come to us with, issues that really aren't ones that, you know, relate to our product, but we still take the time to help them solve it. And we've had cases where people have come to us where they're concerned about identity theft, where their bank account may have been, you know, breached in some way or a credit card, which, you know, doesn't affect our systems or anything like that. But we've had agents actually go out and help them find articles and resources and, you know, Mm -hmm. the identity theft reporting website. So it's going that extra mile. And the other area really about building trust is things like reviews. I think for many companies, reviews seem like such a kind of small you know, piece of the equation or maybe something that they put someone on to do you know, as a task. But for us, it's we view that as being the first line of us understanding and knowing what our customer needs are, what they're feeling challenged by. So we make a point of having a team member every single day where a big chunk of their job for the day is just going and living in our, you know, different app store views, keeping an eye on things like Google Play and making sure that they are being responded to. If somebody says they haven't gotten response and support, for example, we'll actually go out and try and find, you know, the support ticket that they submitted and see, did somebody reply to this? So all in all, it's just being transparent and making our members feel like they're heard and really just practicing what we preach on all that. Yeah. The thing that you mentioned that I want to come back to you, the intentionality of the word float. One of the things that came to me when I was just thinking about float me and what you guys are doing was just kind of like how it is weird that with salaries and employment, you get paid after you do all the work. And I was just thinking like in in most other transactions, it's this thing that happens temporally at the same time. There's like an exchange of goods and services that happen as they transpire. But if you just like kind of reason, it's it's a little weird that people accrue wages that are paid, you know, monthly. And it makes sense that you should be able to access these wages that you have earned. But it just is like the logistics of, of the payday system and, and when you actually get paid. So I, I was really just curious 
how are employers perceiving what FloatMe is doing and why can't employers actually just offer wages up earlier to, to employees to kind of help them out with these situations? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's a great question. So you're dead on as far as the pay cycles go it is really kind of an archaic system. I mean, back you know, 20 years ago, before we had all, you know, the internet back before even like, I think ACH became really big in the nineties, automated clearinghouse payments. Before that, it was all checks. Banks would actually send, you know, checks via tube, you know, <laughs> vacuum tube systems. You know, there's some crazy stuff around there, but you know, with nothing being digitized, it would take weeks for, you know, the accounting department to process everybody's paychecks, you know, get it in the mail, get it so people could actually, you know, cash it out. So it made sense to have kind of a two week, roughly two week pay period. You know, weekly pay cycles weren't common at all back then. And it also was very, you know, also kind of advantageous to employers too at the time in that, yeah, the whole concept of, you know, float is, you know, having excess cash to kind of help you carry, you know, carry your company or even your personal life, you know, help carry you for a period of time. So for companies, they were kind of almost getting a two-week to three-week loan from their employees because your employees right. had already worked. They generated the cash, you know, the value by being productive and doing lots of, you know, great work for you. And then you as a business owner, you know, you got to keep that for two weeks so you could invest in, you know, infrastructure or pay vendors before you actually had to pay your employees. You know, and since then, really, you know, technology has caught up. I mean, I love, we have a payroll system that we use called Gusto, but, you know, ADP and all these other ones do a lot of great stuff too, where you can turn around and you can, if you want to, you know, I could have my employees you know, they could work, have their pay cycle end on the 30th and I could pay them on the first of the month. That's still a little bit challenging just because you have to make sure that all the taxes are taken out and all that, but there's really no reason it needs to be two weeks or even a month for monthly paid employees like it used to be. But yeah, but that's kind of where some of, you know, what we're doing in early wage advance programs come into play is it basically lets employees get paid early. We actually started off being a B2B company. To answer your kind of question about how employers perceive us. Mm -hmm. You know, there were one or two other companies in the space who were doing a pretty nice job. Um, they were, you know, getting things up and running at the time. You know, I actually really, you know, have a lot of you know respect for what folks over at Daily Pay, for example, have really done, where they integrate directly with employer payroll software. So they would integrate with ADP or Gusto, just a couple other big ones. And, you know, they would basically, you know, be able to see how much employee has been, how long its employee has been working, uh, see what they're going to be paid out, and then facilitate the transaction directly that way. And, you know, we thought what they were doing was really nifty. So we decided to do things a little bit differently, but still work directly with employers. And we specifically looked at school districts because, you know, teachers were a demographic that we found that certain times of the year, there is a major cash crunch, you know, in some cases around the summertime, depending on how the school system pays out salaries, especially in the early fall and early spring, um, that's typically teachers pay a lot of money out of pocket for things like school supplies and classroom supplies for their kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of our early employees, you know, Wise was a teacher, so we had a lot of insight into this. And what we ultimately ended up finding was there's a lot of enthusiasm from employers. Like they love the idea of being able to offer this as a benefit to employees, 
there's a lot of evidence that for an employer having a program like this, it increases the retention of employees. It helps decrease things like absences. A lot of employees, you know, they might not be afford, able to afford to go to the doctor or they might not be able to afford gas to make it to work or do a necessary car repair ahead of time, which in turn also, you know, all those things help you retain good employees and also means that you don't have to pay out money to recruit new employees, which is really one of the most expensive parts of the process. It also helps you be a little bit more competitive and the like, and it tends to be very popular. The big challenge with working with large enterprises though, like school districts is it is a really long sales cycle. Uh, mm. Like you're talking sometimes years. And since we are bootstrapping everything, that was a little bit of a challenge. But when we were running, we ran a small test with a couple, I think it was Sinus Institutes in San Antonio and a couple other smaller businesses. And in order to do that small test, we ended up having to put our app up on the app store just so that those employees could you know, access it. We were doing, I think we were planning on doing like you know, 30 to 40 employees total. Mm-hmm. We suddenly started having a bunch of people you know, contacting us on our website, asking us, oh, can I sign up and use this? Oh, you know, this is, looks really interesting. I could really use this. And we couldn't figure out what was going on until we you know, looked a little more into it and we found out these were individual people just working at companies who around the US, they're employed. Yeah, some of them actually sent us proactively things like pay stubs and other info, which was a little oh. alarming at times. <laughs> uh, like, please don't send us this. This is really sensitive. <laughs> but it kind of really underscored how big of a problem it was for them. And that really drove us to kind of pivot as a company and focus instead on being direct to consumer instead of you know partnering with employers directly. We thought, you know, let's start off with actual individual employees. There's really nothing that prevents us from doing this. And so we shifted, shifted focus as a company and that led to us kind of redeveloping the whole product, which took the better part of, I mean, it really took the better part of a year and a half to do that. But during that time, we were able to build a wait list of, I think it was about 70,000 you know, wow. emails. Yeah, we did, we've never advertised. Um, all our growth to date has always been organic. And a big part of that though was you know, having that early wait list. So I, I wanted to build on that bootstrapping idea and really kind of on the tactic side, understand how it is that you go about building this kind of company where you need bank partnerships and the regulatory compliance and how you thought about like risk and fraud prevention in the early days. And, and a lot of these things that I think many startups may not have to think about so early in their life cycle. Yeah. So at a high level, we had the good fortune that the CFPB, that's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they issued this set of rules in 2017, which basically said that they understood the challenges with payday loans and bank overdraft fees, and that it was a huge problem in two ways. One, the way that a lot of those players operated were not good for the consumer. Yeah, so they introduced a lot of rules around disclosures that they had to provide, but that they also realized that the problem, the core problem that people do need these small wage advances, that they do need these small amounts of money in order to, you know, make it to payday, it wasn't going away. And it wasn't something that you could just solve by banning an entire industry. So instead they issued this the set of guidelines, a set of rules that um, encouraged other companies to really innovate and really set a pretty clear framework of what was okay, what wasn't, and you know, that was really 
instrumental for us early on because no one on the team were lawyers. Yeah, we found out we had some really fun, surprising things along the way. (laughs) When we originally conceptualized this, Josh and I, when we were in the startup weekend, we thought we were going to do a peer-to-peer lending platform. It turns out uh, that unless you have something like $700 million back then, I may have changed since then, you basically couldn't do this specific thing called shelf securities legally. So that kind of nixed that idea and we got to pivot hard and that's how we you know, ended up not being a peer-to-peer lending space, be really cool. Maybe somebody could do it today, but so, you know, combined with, you know, really clear guidelines from the CFPB, which of course have since been amended and further clarified, which we are eternally thankful for. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're really good, but it's a lot of reading, you know, if you ever really want to, you know, you're having a hard time falling asleep, just, you know, pull out titles of the, or like read through the, you know, you know, Fair Truth in Lending Act, you know, there was a lot of reading, a lot of notes. You know, the good thing is, you know, there were some other players who were adjacent to us in the space who'd already done some of that legwork for us. The entire concept of doing these small dollar amounts to support employees, that in itself wasn't entirely new. There were, you know, platforms like Zopa in the UK. There was the organizations like Lending Club and funding circle, which were kind of the precursors to this particular industry that we were able to look at and say, okay, here's things they were able to do successfully. Here's the things that they had to adjust for. So that was all really helpful. And then, you know, this is advice I'd give to anybody who, you know, is founding a company is once you feel like you've gotten most of the early research done, but you haven't actually really built a, you know, fancy solution yet, go talk to a lawyer who, you know, is really, you know, familiar with startups. We're very lucky that there's a firm who is very friendly with Venture Firm Erica, who I knew and worked with at the Accelerator, where they they helped us draft up all the company documents for a very reasonable rate. There are a couple of really great firms in Ohio, you know, that I've definitely had some good experiences with as well. But it's a case of like, just, you know, your lawyer becomes your best friend at a certain point. And a good lawyer is... They will tell you what you need them for versus what you can do do yourself. But yeah, so that's, you know, part one is just navigating. It's just a lot of reading, having a good lawyer to kind of answer those questions that you yourself aren't, you know, you hit a point where you start looking at something, you know, that's in the legislation. It just makes no sense. That's the point where you go to the lawyer and say, (laughs) okay, this is what I think it means. What does it actually mean? Just that we, we brought on some people who were, you know, experts in certain areas like Chris, you know, third co-founder, you know, he built bank level infrastructure. So he really does know things like, you know, KYC and anti-money laundering, like what you have to do on the technical side around that to be in compliance and PCI. So that's a whole area that, you know, having somebody knowledgeable helps out when it comes to just keeping track of everything that's going on, going through the legislature. That tends to be me. I, in addition to economics, I also studied political science. So that's a I'm a little bit of a policy wonk at times. So I actually enjoy doing that and following it. That's quite lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the other thing, make sure you, you know, if you're building a company, um, make sure you actually love the parts around it. You're in for a really rough time otherwise, but yeah, so that's be great. And then as we scaled up, you know, you progressively get, find more experts in the space who answer those questions. And yeah, also say there's a lot of other people, people are very willing to give their time and energy to help answer your questions. Yeah, I, I can't express enough gratitude for 
you know, people within the Cleveland startup community who have answered some sometimes really stupid questions that I have asked, you know, in the San Antonio community, you know, before we you know, made where we had the ops team up here in Cleveland, you know, before we were that big. There's a lot of people who just helped us out along the way or able to answer questions that you know, we just didn't know the answers to and we didn't even sometimes know where to start looking. As far as banks go, we actually really don't have to, I mean, there's a couple of banks we do work with and some merchant processors, but the kind of rules there are really clear um, for us. You know, banks are very by the book. And as long as you're doing something that's by the book and get, they can just plug and play, they tend to be very happy. And they're like, oh yeah, we have a form for that. Oh, you need this? Oh, we have another form for that. <laughs> and there's some really innovative banks out there too. I mean, we we experimented for a little bit with uh, basically automated savings accounts that we offered. And we partnered with the National Bank of Kansas City. And they're this very forward thinking bank. We ended up finding out really wasn't the right fit for our users, but you know, for several months, you know, they gave us, you know, they helped connect us with the right people. They helped, you know, kind of guide us along some of those processes. There's just really forward thinking banks out there, but you just have to, you have to ask, you have to ask the questions and uh, find the right people, I guess. Yeah. So the, this last macro topic I, I want to get your perspective on is treating the symptom versus like addressing the root cause of this. And, you, you know, you mentioned early on that what FloatMe is doing is more than just the, the floating of the, of of money and 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 cash, but it, there's a financial literacy component and and work to be done there. And so, with with this context of treating the symptom versus addressing the root cause, when you think about the direction that you want to take, float me. How you're thinking about that? Because again, coming back to that that Einstein quote of you know compound interest and those who understand it, you know, earn it, and those who don't pay it. I really think that. You know, if you're borrowing money or getting credit, you don't actually realize often that you are paying for it. And, and societally, we've fallen into this pattern where these financial products put people on the losing side of that deal. From an outsider's perspective, what I think is awesome about Float Me is that you're actually saying, no, that's like not actually how it has to be. You can have this access and control, but you got to understand the kind of concepts here to really kind of leverage it. Yeah, so for us, it really the end goal is to solve the underlying cause, not just the symptoms. I mean, part of the challenge that honestly, even some of our investors early on, or folks we talked to about investing, didn't always get is sometimes in order to solve the underlying cause, though, you do have to address the symptoms. You have to give a little bit of time all before you can and solve that acute pain point before you can start you know, giving people vitamins to make them healthier. Yeah, that's really why we focused in on the floats first and offering those, you know, basically helping people get paid early, helping them prevent overdrafts. Because for many of the members who are coming out to our platform, you know, if you go and tell them to save money, they're going to say, how? I don't have enough money as it is. I need to solve my problem today. So that's really why we focus there. But over the long run, really what we're trying to do is provide a you know, holistic financial experience. This is kind of the longer term vision that we have. We're, we're not trying to replace a bank. You know, I think there's a lot of great neo banks out there who are coming in doing really cool stuff there. But what we're really trying to replace is you know, for many of our members, their current banking experience and making it better. So an example I'll give is 
if I want to, you know, invest, I bank with, you know, JP Morgan Chase. JP Morgan Chase, you know, is very great in a lot of ways. But if I want to do like, you know, investment and get actual advice on it, they're not even going to talk to me because I don't have a hundred thousand dollars. Like I'm small right, fry right. to them. So really our goal and like the financial tools that a lot of banks, you know, produce, they're helpful, but they're not, you know, that they're not their main focus. So instead, our focus is to produce really tailored financial tools that solve pain points that our specific customer demographic has. You know, so that's by providing all those supplemental auxiliary products that we know that we can do a better job of than, you know, an individual customer's basic bank and really solve those initial pain points. So you know, right now that's solving that cash need, helping them bridge that gap. We know that from day one, our goal, when someone solves that financial cash gap, we want to help them have a better financial picture. So that's why we've been introducing features into our platform, into our apps that, you know, tell people about their, you know, cash flow. You know, we're telling them like, this is your cash in, this is your cash out. Here's a very clear visual. From there, we can expand into you know tools to help them budget better, but in a way that actually makes sense to somebody who is making, you know, who's thirty-one and making forty-two thousand dollars a year, which is our typical customer, not somebody who has a ton of investments or, you know, is getting ready for retirement, but or is making seventy-five thousand or a hundred thousand because they're in a very different financial situation, and once they have that financial picture, we want to help them you know, put their finances on autopilot so that they're not having to constantly think about it or worry about it. And you know, from there, it's then our goal as a company is to keep expanding our platform to meet more and more of these member pain points. Um, we think that one of those areas, you know, is probably going to be helping them build credit. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. You, know, you can do things like a secured credit card. You could do credit builder loans where they're backed by a different instrument, like, for example, a CD. Um, mm -hmm. as a win-win, you'd be doing things like reporting rent because we have all these insights into customer behavior and we can see that they're making, you know, you know that they're actually very good, you know, candidates for credit products, but it's really, you know, stuff like that, that we're really excited about because it's all those things are getting past, you know, the initial pain point for a customer, helping them build savings, helping them get into a situation where they're no longer, you know, reliant on things like overdrafts or wage advances. Instead, they're able to start really thriving. And for us, it's really about making our members financially whole and helping them achieve financial prosperity through a whole suite of different financial products that are designed for them and match the experience that they need. Yeah. I mean, I'm also incredibly excited about the the work that you guys are doing and, and really just the the direction that the industry is headed. These problems are they're just enormous in scale. And I think that there's a lot of, of progress that, that we can make. And it's very cool to see what you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's been a really fun experience along the way. It's had some ups and downs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can say, yeah, frankly, the COVID pandemic was, that was my nightmare scenario of not knowing how a Black Swan event like that would affect us. And we were you know, very fortunate to have had a great group of investors based in Cleveland, San Antonio, who helped, uh, you know, helped support us and actually helped us keep up with some pretty significant growth that 
you know, was starting to cause some champagne problems uh, <laughs> around then. So yeah, can't, yeah, a lot of people were very thankful for along this journey. That's great to hear. Well, we'll tie it back to Cleveland actually to, to wrap it up. You know, one of the things that we're, we're doing is uh, just over time painting a collective collage of people's not necessarily favorite things in Cleveland, but hidden gems, things that other people might not necessarily know about. So with that, I will ask you about hidden gems in Cleveland. Oh man, that is, you know, I, I'd say from a self-interest standpoint, I'm a little, a little sad to have to give some of these up because oh, <laughs> I love to keep them all for me, but um, for our massive audience. Yeah. For a massive audience here. Uh, one of my favorite places I think is a little bit tucked away is Lucky's Cafe down in Tremont. They do amazing I did amazing food in general, but if you can go out there on a you know weekend and get brunch over there, it is incredible. A lot of their, you know, if you're especially if you're diehard Cleveland, a lot of their stuff is very locally sourced. They have a full service bakery as well, outdoor patio, really just a great spot. Uh, somewhere that I'm very much looking forward to being able to visit again soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, me yeah, too. That, not totally hidden gem, but yeah, another thing I'll throw there is I love the outdoors, Cleveland Metro Parks. I'm very excited for all the bike trails coming up, being able to bike to and from the office moving forward. Yeah, it's good to be back in Cleveland. Good to be back. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, really appreciate you coming on and and uh, sharing your story. And again, I, I think the work you're doing is really exciting and, and impactful, and I'm, I'm rooting for you guys. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm really excited to... Uh, Hear more episodes of the podcast, Jeff. I've been <laughs> loving it. Uh, glad to hear that. If people have anything that they want to follow up with you about or questions, follow up interest, where's the best place for them to, to reach you? Yeah. So, you know, if they, they're interested in the company as a whole, they can visit us at www.floatme.io. Uh, if they want to contact me directly, I can be reached at Ryan C, as in cat, at floatme.io. I'm also on Twitter uh, with a very creative handle of Ryan P. Cleary. So, oh, you got your name. That's like, I was going to say, that's exciting. I'm really easy (laughs) to find uh, there if anyone wants to reach out to me. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So, shoot us an email at layoftheland.upside.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland, at thetagan, or at sternhefe, J E F E. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please email us or find us on Twitter and let us know. And if you love our show, please leave a review on iTunes. That goes a long way in helping us spread the word and continue to help bring high-quality guests to the show. Taken Horton and Jeffrey Stern developed the Lay of the Land podcast in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Founders Get Funds and its affiliates or actual and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.